just want to encourage you to just stay in that attitude of worship right there because <clears throat> just because the music has stopped doesn't mean worship has. Um, this is an interactive relationship we are in with the Lord individually and corporately. We just spent time singing to Him and declaring His praises. And uh, now it's time for us, the other side of that, to just listen to Him. Because I believe that He's got something to say to us this morning. And uh, if He's got something to say, we might want to pay attention to it, right? <laughs> If you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 4, as we continue to look at what all we have in Christ, essentially looking at what it means to be a Christian, today we're going to look at what I believe is the most important thing for us to understand about our identity in Christ. It's a truth that we find in several places in Scripture, but today we're going to look at the way that Paul describes it. It's in Galatians 4. And we're going to start in verse 4, so let's all stand in honor of God's word today. Galatians 4, 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Good grief. I did that this morning, too, in the first service. Man, let's pray. God, your word is so good. Uh, Lord, uh, Lord, we do want you to be lifted up this morning. Lord, you even said in your word that if you be lifted up, you will draw them into yourself. I know specifically you were talking about being lifted up. On the cross. But God, I believe that when you were lifted up in our mind and our eyes, when we see you for the worth that you have, when we see you for your glory and your grace and your mercy and your power, Lord, we can't help but be drawn to that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are. We may be changed by it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about the importance of knowing who you are, and we looked at how in our Western culture, we tend to equate who we are with what we do, and we learned how dangerous it really is to do that, but who you are in Christ has absolutely nothing to do with what you do, and it has everything to do with what Jesus did. And just getting that one thing right there can radically change your view of God and, and how you relate to Him. I mean, for one thing, it allows you to just rest in His grace and not try so hard all the time to, to buy Him off or try to gain any kind of leverage with Him through promises of good behavior. It also wraps you up in a warm security blanket, knowing that if it's not about what I do, then that's really good news because it means that I can't mess it up because I tend to mess things up pretty well. And if I can't mess it up, then it means that I can't lose it. And it also makes you realize that 
God isn't watching your every move just waiting to strike as soon as you mess up, but he is watching your every move the way that a loving father would watch their child learning how to walk. Knowing who we are in Christ is the single most important thing for us as Christians. It's not for us to know what to do, but if it's, it's for us to know who we are because what we believe about ourselves affects everything that we do in life. Like I said, who we are has nothing to do with what we do, but what we do has everything to do with who we believe we are. Sounds confusing, doesn't it? Let me say it another way. What we do, the way that we live is a direct indicator of what we believe about ourselves. I mean, we just can't help but reflect that in the way that we live. And uh, what we're going to look at today about who we are in Christ can absolutely change everything if you really understand what this means and you really believe it. The title of the message is No Longer Slaves, but... Uh, this really isn't as much about what we are not as it is about what we are. So I'm just going to talk briefly about what we are not anymore in Christ, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at who He has made us. So it says that we are no longer slaves. So what does that mean? Well, to be a slave, of course, means to be under the power, under the control of something or someone. So what were we slaves to? What were we under the power and control of? Well, it tells us in verse 5, based on what Jesus did. Verse 5 says, so that he might redeem those who are under the law. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that the word redeem means the releasing caused by payment of a ransom. And so this is saying that we were ransomed, we were released out from under the law. And when we're talking about law here, of course, we're talking about the law of Moses, essentially the Ten Commandments. This is what we were slaves to. Well, what does it mean then to be a slave to the law? It means that apart from Christ, that is the standard that we are held to. This is what you will be judged by. Not how well you were able to obey it, as in how hard you tried or how many of them you got right, but what you'll be judged by apart from Christ is whether or not you were able to obey it perfectly. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.10 that those who live by the law are under a curse. And so to be a slave to the law means that we are under a curse because it is absolutely impossible for us to live up to it perfectly. And it is so sad to me that so many people still today who claim to be Christians are still trying to live their lives according to this standard. They don't understand what it means to be in Christ, who they have been made. And so their life is just trying as hard as they can to obey the Ten Commandments, thinking that that's how they're going to gain God's favor and acceptance. And uh, my guess is that they're just hoping that God's going to let them in based on how hard they tried, based on what their intentions were in that, because nobody can live up to it perfectly. And James said, whoever is guilty of breaking just one small part of it is guilty of breaking the entire thing. 
And so people who are just miserably living like that, I really wish that they would just read their Bible because in verse 13 of Galatians 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So this is what it means to no longer be slaves in this context. We are out from under the curse of the law. We no longer have to try as hard as we can to live up to it and, and obey all those rules and commands. Now that right there would be good news all by itself. We are no longer held to that standard because Jesus met that standard for us. That is great news, but there is Nothing in there whatsoever that would cause us to change our life in any way. If it did anything, it would really lend itself to, to causing us to use it as a license to just go out and live however we wanted to, knowing that we're not held by that standard anymore. The good news of the gospel isn't just that we are no longer slaves, but that we have been made sons. And this is what I believe is the most important thing for us to understand about our identity in Christ, the fact that we have been made sons. If we could just get this, it would change everything for us. Let me just say, whenever I say sons in this, I'm talking about everyone who has put their trust in Jesus for salvation, men and women included. This is not a gender thing. This is a status with God, our relationship with him thing. And so women, uh, to say that you have been made a son isn't something for you to be offended by, but something you should actually be excited about because the word son in relation to the gospel has incredible meaning. So don't think of it in terms of gender. Just think of it in terms of your status with God. It, it means something to be a son of the Father. And whether you are male or female, if you are in Christ, you have all the benefits going to you that a son of the Father would get. But it has nothing to do with gender and everything to do with your position. And this goes back to what I talked about before, about how how God hasn't just saved us from something, he saved us to something. He hasn't just saved us from the curse of the law or from hell. He has saved us to sonship. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know that this father-son dynamic runs all the way through it. In fact, I mean, it really is the main theme of God's overall big story. Beginning with Adam, who Mark referred to as the Son of God, and running all through the Old Testament. Every major Old Testament story centered around the relationship of a father and a son. It was Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob and his 12 sons, the favorite one being Joseph. And all of these father-son stories in the Old Testament were foreshadows of a greater father-son relationship, a greater father-son story that was to come. The story of Joseph, of course, results in the Hebrew people settling in Egypt and eventually becoming slaves to Pharaoh. The Hebrew people God referred to, he called them corporately Israel, and he sent Moses to lead his people out of slavery into sonship. 
In Exodus 4.22, God is speaking to Moses, telling him what to say to Pharaoh. And he says this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now this was all a foreshadow of God sending Jesus to lead his people out of slavery into sonship. And when Jesus was here on earth, he showed us what life looks like when you know what it means to be a son of the Father. I'm sure you've heard the saying that inside all of us is this God-shaped vacuum that can't be filled by anything unless it is occupied by God. The truth is it's even more specific than that. That inner space inside all of us that cries out for meaning and purpose was specifically designed to be filled by not just a God, but a God who is Father. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, Father is the Christian name for God. No other religion refers to their God as Father the way that Christians do. And when Jesus was here, he was able to live the way that he lived and do the things that he did for one simple reason. And it wasn't because he had some supernatural power, because he was also God that that no one else had. The Bible says that he emptied himself, which means that he he emptied himself of anything supernatural uh, about him, about the, the God part of him, and took on the same human limitations that you and I have as human beings. There was nothing in Jesus's humanness that gave him some kind of advantage in life that no one else had. Well, actually, I take that back. There was one thing that he had that no one else did have at that time, and that was a relationship with the Father as a son. And Jesus was able to live the way he lived and do the things that he did simply because he knew what that meant. He knew what it meant to be a son of the Father. And he even said, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I do what I see my Father doing, and I say what I hear my Father saying. And he displayed to us when he was here what that the ultimate father-son relationship looks like. And then he went to the cross so that you and I could enjoy that very same relationship. That he displayed. I want us to look at something that he said back in John chapter 14. So turn back there for just a minute. John 14 is part of Jesus' last discourse with his disciples before his execution, his crucifixion. And uh, it was during this time with them that, you know, he, he was just saying the last things that he, he wanted to say, like he knew that this was his last time with them, and so these were the most important things that he wanted to get across, and he uses this time to, to summarize and really focus in on his main pur- purpose, and the whole discussion really centers around this whole father-son dynamic, and I'll look at what he says starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, contrary to popular belief, Jesus is not talking about building houses for us in heaven. I'm not saying we won't have mansions and houses in heaven. I'm just saying that right here, that is not what he's talking about. And the reason why so many have taken it to mean that is because in the King James Version, it actually translates the Greek word that's translated here into dwelling places as mansions. And it says, in my father's house are many mansions. But mansion, in reality, is not a very accurate translation of the Greek word that was used there because it actually means just a general place to dwell. It could be a mansion, it could be a hut, it could be a temple, it's any place to dwell. But then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And the word used there for place is the word topos, which the definition there has more to do with a positional thing than it does a physical thing or a structure. And that's the same word that was used in John eleven forty eight when the religious leaders were talking about Jesus. And they said, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, our topos, and our nation. They were worried about losing their position, their topos of high status among all the people in society. And so the place that Jesus is talking about preparing is a positional place in the Father. And he says that where I am, you may also be. Where was he? He was in the Father as a favored son. And so he's saying, I'm going to make that same place available for you as well. And there's room for many. There are many places for those who believe in him as sons. And then that's what he did. And on that cross, the favored son became the orphan so that you and I could enjoy that relationship with the father that he had, that he displayed when he was here on earth. He became the orphan so that we could become sons. What exactly does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to live as a son? How does knowing that change your life in any way? Well, first of all, sons trust the father's provision. Before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed that same type of, of sonship relationship with, with the father. And they never had to worry about ever being provided for. I mean, all they could ever want or desire was at their disposal, anywhere they turned, right there in the garden. And Jesus lived that same way. You notice he never did feature his own personal possession of anything because he knew that being a son meant that he had access to all of the Father's resources. When he needed bread to feed a large crowd and he only had five loaves of it, he didn't get anxious. He trusted that the Father would provide, and he did. When he needed money to pay a particular tax, he told Peter, well, go pull a fish out of the water and look in his mouth there, and you'll find the exact amount of money that we need. And Peter did just that. 
I believe that happened right there just to demonstrate that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains and that his children have access to all of his resources. Access to it all. When Jesus needed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem, it was available. When he needed a tomb for the weekend, it was his to use. Not once do we see Jesus ever getting worried or anxious about not having anything that he needed because he knew he was a son and that the Father would provide for all of his needs. And that's what his whole lesson was on the Sermon on the Mount, saying don't be anxious for what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear or anything like that because the Father knows you need these things. And I'm telling you, you and I can live that way too. I mean, that's the relationship with the Father that Jesus provided for us. Sad truth is, there really aren't many who are living that way. Because if you look around us, I mean, just, just the fact that we pile up so much junk around us is a sign of an orphan mentality. I mean, we stockpile provision and, and just build our own kingdoms around us the way we do. It's an orphan mentality that shows that we don't trust that things are going to be there when we need them. And so we've got to take matters into our own hands to ensure our provision. I believe I've told you the story before about this family of, uh, um, in my sister and brother-in-law's church in Dallas. who was a very wealthy, and they adopted this brothers and sisters from Africa. They are preteen at this time, but they had grown up as orphans. And this was a very wealthy family who lived in a large house, and never again would they ever have to worry about where their next meal was coming from. After being there for a couple of weeks, the mother was up in their room cleaning it up, and she started vacuuming, and she pulled up under the bed to, to clean up under there, and she noticed that they had stockpiled a bunch of food under their bed. That every time they sat down to eat a meal, they kept a little piece of it and put it away and hid it. And when they got to their room, they stuffed it up under the bed because they were still living with that mentality that all this might not be there again. And so they've got to make sure that they're going to have it. That's an orphan mentality that many of us are still living with as well. And it just signifies that we don't know what it means to be a son of the Father. But when you do realize what it means and you completely trust God for your provision, what do you think that frees you to do? Give like crazy. You'll never be able to outgive your provision being a son of the Father. And then, secondly, sons know that they are protected. This goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago that. God will not allow anything to happen that would keep his purpose from being fulfilled in any of his children. And knowing that means that we can just live with reckless abandon in the things that God has called us to without fear. You know, several times during Jesus' ministry, people sought to kill him. And there were several times where they had him right there, cornered with no way for it to escape. They had him dead to rights, but he would escape. He would just inexplicably slip away. Was that because Jesus had, Jesus had some 
ninja-like stealth moves that we don't read about in the Bible? No, it was because the Father was protecting him and nothing was going to happen to him until the Father said it was time. That's why Jesus could go to the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and wreak all kinds of havoc there. That's why he could stand up to the Pharisees who wanted him dead and call them sons of Satan right to their face. It's why he could touch the lepers without fear of getting infected himself because he knew that he was protected by the Father, which allowed him to live life wide open without any fear. And I'm telling you, you and I can live that way too because of what Jesus has made us. And then thirdly, sons don't strive for position. They don't have to be first, best, or famous. Their position as a son can't be matched by any other position that you can attain in this world. When you know what it means to be a son of the Father, you should be so content in that that you don't strive for anything else, not the recognition of others, not fame, not a title, or anything like that. You know, Jesus could have easily demanded to be the high priest in Jerusalem because, after all, he was the fulfillment of what that position represented. Or he could have set his sights on higher ambitions and become, uh, made himself king. And that's exactly what many of the people wanted him to do and what many of them expected him to do because they were looking at the Messiah to be their political savior rather than their spiritual one. But Jesus knew that neither the position of high priest of the temple nor the position of king of Israel can come close to comparing with what it meant for him to be a son of the father. So he never did strive or maneuver or try to make his way into any other position. Just think of how different things would be if we had that same mentality. We wouldn't be trying to one-up each other all the time or putting others down to make ourselves look better. There wouldn't be any of this defending our own personal turf and making fools of ourselves, trying to be accepted by others or be popular. None of that would be going on if we really knew what it meant to be a son of the Father. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 for just a minute. I want to show you something. And when Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days, and Satan came to tempt him and attack him. And I want to show you how Satan's attacks on Jesus were an attempt to undermine his position as a son. Because, I mean, look, if Jesus was able to do all that he did, if the reason why he was so successful at his mission was because he knew what it meant to be a son, then all Satan had to do to keep Jesus from being successful was to get him to doubt that. To doubt what it really meant and to doubt that the Father was as good as he is. And that's exactly what Satan tried to do. Look at this. There are three temptations that Satan throws at Jesus, and each one of these corresponds to the three things I just listed. The first one is in verse 3. Matthew 4, 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. What did he try to make Jesus question here? The Father's provision. 
I mean, Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, so you know he was pretty darn hungry. And so Satan is going, look, how do you know the Father's going to provide for you? You're pretty hungry. All you got to do is just take matters into your own hands here. You can do it. Make it turn to bread. He was trying to cause him to doubt the Father's provision. And then verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This was all about the Father's protection. Satan used it as a way to try to distract Jesus and get him off his game, get him off of his mission. But Jesus knew that the Father's protection was there in order for him to be able to fulfill his mission unhindered and without fear, not so he could just do any silly thing that he wanted to. And plus, Satan was really challenging him on this, basically saying, if you think the Father's really going to protect you, then prove it. And Jesus essentially is saying, I don't need to prove it. I know it. And then verse 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And there he's attacking Jesus' position. But no position in the world that Satan could offer him would come close to the position that he knew he had as a son. But here's why I believe that Jesus was really able to stand firm against these attacks and temptations. It's because that right before he went into this wilderness, he was baptized in the river by John, and it was there that the Father, right in front of all who were there, spoke out and said to his son, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is how Jesus' ministry began. In order for his son to be successful, the father didn't fill his head with instruction on what he needed to do. He filled his heart with the affirmation of who he was. Knowing that if he knew who he was, what he did would take care of itself. And that's what God wants to do with each and every one of you here today, too. He wants to fill your heart with the affirmation of who you are in Him. He wants you to know that in you, He is well pleased. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Because you've been made a son. Satan's tactic against us is to not only get us to question our identity as sons, but also to distort God's identity as father. And for us to believe anything other than the fact that he is good. I believe that that's probably the main reason why families are under such attack these days. Because the way that we relate to our earthly fathers usually has a lot to do with the way that we relate to God It's also why nearly everything that we see on TV from commercials to sitcoms portrays the father as the weak fool. 
It's all an effort to distort the image of Father. Now, for some of you, I understand that that word Father probably conjures up some very negative connotations. I'm telling you right now, the Lord wants to heal you of whatever wound your earthly father has caused. Whether it was a wound caused by his actions or his inactions. And he wants you to see and to know what a good father can be. He's not just a good father. He is the perfect father. And no good thing does he withhold from those who belong to him. Like I said, knowing that we are no longer slaves to the law doesn't really give us a motivation to change the way we live. But knowing that you've been made a son does. Because it means that you've been called to a higher, a better way of living. You know it's orphans, the fatherless, who tend to be the ones that are the most rebellious and self-centered. I mean, just look at the prison population and the high percentage of them that are fatherless. There's a direct result there. But sons know that there's a better way. There's a better life that's been provided for them by the Father. And if you trust in Jesus, that's what you have in Him. Let's pray. Lord, I believe that there is something in this that you are speaking specifically to to some in here this morning. God, I believe there's somebody in here for whom you have been looking forward to this day for a long time. Knowing that they would be right here listening to your truth. Father, I pray that it would penetrate deep down into their heart and just transform their minds. God, it just changes them from the inside out. Lord, I pray for those who have had bad experiences with earthly fathers. And because of that, God, it's just keeping them from really grasping what it means for you to be father. Lord, I pray that you would break through that right now in only the miraculous way that you are able to do that. I pray that you heal those father wounds. That you erase those negative tapes that keep playing in their mind. And that they would come to know what a perfect father is like in you. Lord, I pray that we all would just quit living from such an orphan mentality and that we would know what it means to belong to you, to have been made sons, that we can live this life without fear and without hindrance, knowing that you are aware and you are taking care of every detail, that you are guiding each one of our steps. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now and just do the work in us that you intended to do this morning. Lord, we just submit ourselves to you and say, have your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.